Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode of the Cato podcast, I've asked John Cabrera to join me while we interview fellow Cato board member, Matt Alexander, and one of his partners, Frank Harper, who helps tra- train snipers for, uh, you know, about the last 10, 12 years. We're going to talk a little bit about some sniper issues, some sniper trends, and uh, some of the commonalities that they have seen as they train uh, folks up and down uh, the state of California. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. John, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Marcus. Thanks for having me again. And uh, we're going to ask these two, uh, what do you guys call, what do you call snipers? You know, like the, they think they're ninjas or the parents of the SWAT team. They do weird, put weird bushes in their hats and spoon each other and eat snacks. So um, <clears throat> we asked these guys to talk to us a little bit about their experiences. And Matt, Matt, uh, for those of you that don't know Matt, he uh, works for... Uh, county sheriff's office he'll tell you about he's a uh, currently a captain so uh not really involved in police work anymore and uh but he runs our sniper symposium and uh, also has his own uh, business where he trains and runs some sniper schools so we're gonna talk about that a little bit so matt tell us a little bit about yourself and then uh, also when did you first start getting involved in cato and, and the reason why i ask you that is we all kind of joined the board to give back to because of the things we got from Cato that we probably wouldn't have got anywhere else. Yeah. So I've been active with Cato as a member for a long time since I was way back when I was a real cop and uh, doing cop stuff still. And, you know, I just always appreciated uh, the value that I got from a statewide organization. It's a huge state, as you know, and um, having it's it's really difficult to bring people from a state this big together. And so we'd go to the conferences and it was a great network and opportunity. Uh, went to some of the training classes. And um, so I, I was always invested in Cato. And then when I, I guess, took on a more administrative role in my career, uh, it kind of naturally flowed into wanting to get more involved at that level with Cato. And uh, my agency was supportive of it. So I, I started teaching for Cato first. I was teaching a little bit for the team leader class, mostly for the SWAT commander class. Uh, we kind of revamped that class and and I enjoyed teaching that a lot. And then that kind of got me more involved with the Cato leadership. And when there were some 
some vacancies on the board. I decided to throw my hat in for that and was fortunate enough to get selected. And uh, we saw a big change in leadership. You know, we got a new president. Not that there was anything wrong with the old leadership, but it just kind of seemed like an exciting time, like a lot of lot of new energy and new ideas. And I just wanted to be a part of that. Very cool. So at the same time, you did a lot of, of uh, firearms training and you were a sniper and worked on your sniper instructor skills and you have your own company? I do. Uh, I started that in like, I think 2011, 2012. And we started out with like one class, a basic sniper school. Uh, I had taught for other people, uh, another company. And I just, you know, I hit the point where I wanted to run my own class, the class I wanted to run the way I wanted to run it. And so I built a business, started really, really small, recruited Frank here. And, uh, one of the other guys, Eddie, that that we've both worked in with on the team and trained with on the team for a long time. Um, two guys that I trusted and we just started running basic sniper schools. We did two a year, you know, and that's how it was for a while. And then just started building, started adding more classes, started identifying gaps in training around the state. It was kind of amazing to me what, what wasn't being offered in a state this size at times. Um, and I just kind of felt like snipers were, a little bit neglected. They've always been a little bit neglected. It's better now than it was, but it's, they're still, they don't have the training opportunities that you would have on the entry side. There's a thousand schools you can go to as an entry guy. And, you know, basically after you'd had basic and advanced sniper, you're kind of out of schools to go to for the most part, unless you wanted to go out of state. And so we started creating classes to, to kind of bridge those gaps and provide kind of skill building opportunities for snipers to get post-certified training a little more often without having to go out of state for it. And, you know, it's been great. It's just kind of took off. The demand is there, which kind of shows you that there was a need for it. And so we have a great time filling that. We, we typically focus on outside of the basic, which is obviously a week. We focus on typically two day classes where we can just keep a high intensity level for two days, get two good solid days of work and not try to cover too much. Just spend two days on a few topics and give people the opportunity to really kind of build some proficiency in those skill sets. And then, and then they're done, you know, they're not gone for a whole week they're not hitting that, that point in the middle of the week where your energy level drops off dramatically and, it seems to be working out pretty well. It's a good format. It's working for us so far. Well, good. Well, thank you. And uh, Frank, thanks for joining us. Um, if you don't mind, just give us a little bit of, uh, I know how much you love talking about yourself, but at least let, let people know who they're talking to and where you're coming from. And then we'll kind of talk about some of the some of the sniper uh, trends you've seen as you're dealing with folks from all over the state. All right. Well, thanks for the, uh, for the introduction. My name's uh, Frank Harper. Um, Work for the sheriff's department here. I've been there for almost 29 years as a sergeant for the last 12. Um, I did uh, 10 years on our SWAT team, nine of that as a sniper. Um, when I got promoted, I actually went over and ran the crisis negotiations team for about six years. Uh, so I kind of got to see both sides of the, uh, of the element. Um, when I was on our SWAT team, one of the things that I kind of noticed, I, my main interest was to be a sniper from the get-go. That's why I got on the team was to do that. Always had uh, 
a passion for that. And when I got over there, I always felt like the sniper element was never used to its fullest potential. We would show up to training. They would say, down all your stuff, grab your entry gear, come over here and start doing, uh, you know, entry training. And I just felt like the bosses really didn't know how to use us and get the most out of what we were capable of doing. And, you know, you try to speak up when you could, you know, you know your place. And as years went on, that started to evolve. Uh, and I think the, uh, the team leader started to see some of the things that we were capable of doing, some of the equipment we could bring to bear. And that's sort of evolved. And like anything, it's, uh, you're, you're on that, um, you're, you're doing that work and then you see guys that have come after you and they're taking it to a higher level. And that's really what we should be striving to do. It's what we're doing with the training is taking guys where they think they can't get any better or they're kind of at that Zenith and then bringing them to the next level, introducing something different and a different capability for them to, to do. And, um, so when Matt had talked about starting the, uh, the training, uh, company, I was all in because we're like, like-minded. We kind of thought, Hey, snipers are, um, they're, they're decent. Um, but a lot of times they're called on when calls have gotten so bad that it's like the, uh, it's like the field goal kicker at the end of the Super Bowl, And you got a few seconds on the board and you got to kick this, this field goal and they're really not prepared for it. They haven't trained for it. They're not using the equipment that they need to use. And, uh, so when he talked about doing the, uh, the training, uh, I was, I was all in, like he said, we started with the basic sniper school and after running several of those, we started seeing trends. We started seeing things that guys were good at. We started seeing uh, what they weren't so good at, what was kind of lacking. And we start, started bringing in more training to cover these areas. And that's now evolved to uh, pass the basic sniper school to an urban uh, sniper school, an advanced sniper school, and a night vision precision rifle. And uh, all of these classes touch on different uh, disciplines that guys need to be proficient in them. We kind of teach that. And then we let them sort of, um, you know, practice the disciplines to get, uh, to get good at it. Um, like Matt said, there, the two day classes seem to be pretty good. Guys can learn a couple new techniques and then apply them and they're not all burned out and, and tired at the end of it. And you've been teaching that for how many years? Uh, I've been teaching for Matt for, I think 11 years now, something like that. Right around there. And so we've seen, uh, over that time, we've, one, one of the benefits that we get to do is because we're seeing so many people come through, we're seeing the same problems. We're seeing the same successes. And it, you start to see the trends after a while, like, Hey, this is becoming an issue or guys don't know how to do this, or they're good at this. Um, and it's kind of a unique perspective where you may be working amongst your own team and not even realize that that's an issue. That's a trend. We see it because we're seeing hundreds of, of guys that have come through training over the years. Yeah, and what are what are some of those what are some of those things you've seen? Like uh, I know when I went to sniper school, and it sounds like it's consistent for every sniper school. There's always one agency that throws in some guys at the last second. They show up. They're like, "What do you have?" I don't know, man. They just gave me all this stuff yesterday, and they unpack a rifle. Like, have you shot it? Like, I haven't seen it before right. or I shot it when did you shoot it 17 years ago like and so they pull their stuff out and you you, they, you spend a couple hours just making sure everything works right let alone zeroing it in and making sure it's all good and that seems to be pretty consistent like hey we don't have a sniper oh, I guess we need a sniper here's your stuff and just go yeah we still see that every class um 
you know, we start out with intros. We ask people, you know, where are you from? Get a feel for their experience. What kind of rifle and scope are you running? What kind of ammunition did you bring? And it's not uncommon, right, for people to be like, uh, I've got uh, like a Accuracy International and I don't really know what kind of ammo. <laughs> I'm not sure. And I just basically, like you said, I got this gun last night before I drove up here. And so we, we gear the class for that. We know that's going to happen every time, but you know, it is, but that doesn't mean it should. No, no. And a lot of, a lot of agencies are pretty good about like, yeah, they've got me on this gun for a couple few months, like before they sent me. So I'm at least somewhat familiar with it. And that's, that's nice. Um, we still see like weird things like a, a an agency will send somebody with like garbage equipment on purpose, you know, like one guy, one guy came through class and I, I just told him, look, you need a, you need a new rifle. And, um, I don't tell people that very often cause that's typically not the case, but I was kind of surprised when he says, no, no, I know I've got one. Like it's, it's waiting at home. And I said, well, why did you bring this one? He said, oh, they just, they make you, you know, it's a, it's kind of a rite of passage to, you got to go through class with this old gun that doesn't work very well. And it's just kind of funny. Um, we see a little bit of weird stuff like that here and there. Um, I will say the overall, the equipment has gotten a lot better since we started teaching this class, the, the quality of equipment. I mean, it's just gotten better industry wise. Um, so there's a lot better equipment available, but it does seem, and Frank can tell me if he thinks I'm wrong, but it seems like overall agencies are investing a lot more in their sniper teams and their equipment. They're buying them more stuff. They're buying them better stuff. Um, but every now and then, yeah, we're still seeing neglected, <laughs> neglected snipers coming through and, uh, you know, it's just challenges individual agencies sometimes face. And some of these guys don't have a boss to advocate for them. You know, we see that too, where they don't really have a sergeant assigned to them. They're maybe reporting to one of the entry team sergeants who's not really schooled up on sniper issues. And it's hard to get uh, the support they need in terms of money or equipment or training, you know, that kind of thing. So some, some agencies definitely have it better than others. Yeah. And it's, it's a, uh, depends on where you work, right? Your budget, how long you've had your stuff. It's, not always easy to go through that purchasing process because sniper rifles are are expensive, and uh, they are you know other than night vision and some stuff like that. Your sniper snipers are an expensive group um, for such a small group. Like you compare your entry perimeter teams, and then compare the amount of money you spend on two to four dudes, maybe six. You know, it's a lot of money. Is that's true? Um, one of the things that I'll tell people is. If your if your agency is struggling getting guys equipment and training, training is actually even more important. But if your agency is struggling doing that, then why are they getting involved in that in the first place? It's uh, what you're asking people to do. Is, you know whether it be hostage rescue or or you know you're asking people that are doing very 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 dangerous calls to go and participate in that with all the liability that comes along with it. And then if you're not backing them up with equipment and training to do that, you're setting them up for failure. And uh, so, yeah, sniper equipment is, is expensive. Those four to six guys or however large the team is, um, by the time they start adding everything up, scopes and rifles and night vision and all the, all the equipment that goes with it, uh, definitely can have some sticker shock 
but again, I kind of I, I look at uh, I look at what they're being asked to do, and if they're not equipped and trained properly, you're going to set yourself up for failure. And you can go and look, and there's videos left and right of all kinds of failures that have happened on real calls. And then everyone's left scratching their head, like, where did we go wrong on this? And you can generally point a finger at, at equipment and training, for sure, on both of those. Yeah, and um, that kind of leads me to a follow-up question, which we've all talked about in the past. And that's the uh, same problem we have with tactical teams or in any training in law enforcement. Does your training match your mission profiles? Do you take the time to look at the history of your agency and what kind of calls are you having? And and what in your case we're talking about sniper stuff so are snipers training for the kind of missions they would have and and uh, what what's that look like for you when you've seen kind of people's training plans or their training matrix for snipers and what are some of those challenges you've seen yeah it's very common for for snipers to be neglected in the amount of training they get and then again like i kind of talked about earlier they they aren't always really um, provided the training to know how to train themselves, but they're expected to do it. So they'll just kind of get administrative and lay down and get a cold bar in a few groups and maybe run through a couple of drills that they do every time because they don't really know what else to do. And that's certainly not every team, but we do see that. And you asked about a training plan and matrix, like a lot of them don't even have that. Like, so they're not even, they don't even have a structured uh, annual plan, like checking off all the boxes of the things they have to do that are based on what they're expected to do on calls, like you mentioned. Um, and so we do, we talk about that at, um, the basic class. I was, I'm running a class this week. We just talked about that today. We spent some time identifying missions and, and different teams have different missions. They don't all do the same thing. And, and some of the bigger teams get tasked with a lot more and they do it a lot more. They might do things like dignitary protection, depending on where you are and how many of how many VIPs you have coming through um, our team, you know, it's on our mission profile, but we really only did it a handful of times that I can remember the whole time I was on the team, which was like 22 years. So um, we do, we push that. Uh, we ask them to focus their training on the higher risk stuff and the things that they're expected to do. Um, a lot of them, they want to do that. You know, they're just, they need some help identifying what their priorities need to be. Uh, and, and a lot of it, like Frank talked about, they need to be co coordinating with the entry element and they don't always have the opportunity to do that. Cause that's where a lot of communication issues break down on real calls is when you put a bunch of things together with a lot of moving parts and they're used to being trained in isolation and you don't get a lot of opportunities to train them as one whole unit. Like uh, I think you and I were talking before this about coordinating team movements and the kind of things they should be used for and sometimes are, but they're doing it without a lot of training and it just, it's rusty sometimes. Yeah. When I went to sniper school, it was, I'm embarrassed to say this, but when I went to sniper school, the, that was the first time that I ever shot a 3d target that was moving and uh they had the robot with the whole torso and they put a jacket on it so yeah. now you had to compensate for where the jacket was and yeah. then the angle as it was moving and uh i just remember sitting there it wasn't even a long shot it was super close but it was like how is this the only time in my career i shot moving targets but they're always one-dimensional paper targets right. or you know i shot a a mannequin 
you know, head or something like that. And even that, when you first shoot a three-dimensional mannequin head or something, is different, yeah. right? It's different. And so, but I still remember that feeling when I'm like, oh, all right, I got to, the angle's changing, the clothes make it look where the torso is. I had to compensate for all that. And I'm in a scope and it was up close and I was kneeling and like all that stuff. And I just thought, that robot probably cost a couple grand. And in reality, it's probably a couple grand now. It's probably way more than. But yeah. how much better would everybody be if they could shoot that all the time? You know, how many how many times have we been on calls where you're you're looking at whatever is going on and you're like, man, this isn't like training. This is this is really different. And if that's happening a lot, you need to change your training. You need to bring your training to be more like the calls that you're on, and whether it be a target. Or whether it be the realism of, of the training that you're doing, if it's not matching up with that really good, you need to kind of take a look at that. Uh, it's too easy, like Matt was talking about, the administrative stuff, the constantly parking at 100 yards and shooting groups at 100 yards is not like most of the deployments. Most of the stuff that I ever went on on was 42 yards, 37 yards, 65 yards, things like that. And if you ask me how many times I trained at those distances, it was never, it was, I would never do that. Like once in a while on a scenario, never shot. I'm just sitting there reporting back. Um, so that's one of the things that we kind of harp on a lot is like your training should match your calls. Yeah. That's the first time, uh, we started shooting from a vehicle, you know, from inside a van, yeah. you know, and how do, how do you do that and not make yourself deaf for the rest of your life? How do you do that without damaging the van? Right. Like, cause, right. cause in a city we're half our hides are in a vehicle, you know, they're not 400 yards away or, you know, I don't get to pull out my custom made ghillie suit that I made in school with the different kinds of, you know what I mean? Like I'm I never used once. For, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's pretty interesting. And, and going back to communication, um, I remember, uh, really disciplined, controlled movements all organized by the snipers snipers had overwatch and they were like hey you know element a you're free to move to your next location element b stand by it's clear you know really coordinating all those movements with a sniper and i know some teams still do that but i, I feel like it's a lot more rare and, and we use drones and we use different stuff now but but that stuff may give you a better camera angle because you get to watch it from the command post and people feel safer, but man, I, and I, I'm biased, you know, cause I was a sniper, but nothing's better than a guy that sees all of it behind a barrel going, you're clear to move into that position. Now I got, I, you know, I got you until you get there. Yeah. Com communication separates good sniper teams from bad sniper teams. It's one of the most important things you can, you can do well because you have, either your scope or a spotting scope, you're able to see stuff without, you know, being subjecting yourself to the threat. Um, you're, you're able to see a lot. And that's when, and really, if you think about what you do as a sniper, that's about 98% of what you do is you observe, you look for things that are useful information. Where are the hinges on a door? Is a guard dog on a chain? Are there a security camera there? 
you're looking, you're observing and it's, and it's difficult because it's very easy to get complacent and not pay attention to that, but you're observing to your best ability. And then you're clearly and concisely reporting that information back to the entry team or to the, the other elements of the SWAT team so that they can take advantage of it and use that to their ability. Um, you know, what, what do they need to bring with them to the, to the entryway? Um, so that, that type of communication is really important and it's really not trained a whole lot. Um, you'll talk to teams, sniper initiated assault, rarely done, but what a critical task to be efficient with. And when that, when that happens, the stress levels off the chart, and that's not the time to be practicing something like that. Um, cause it's not going to go off clean. It, it should be done over and over and over again until everybody knows how to do it correctly. Yeah, I, I totally remember training that when I was brand new and I wasn't a sniper, you know, and we just, as soon as a shot was away, we went in and that's all we knew. And then I saw somebody do it where they went, no, 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 you don't go until the sniper says you can go because that's the guy who just shot somebody and he may have a second shot. Right. And I'm like, uh, for the last five years, I trained to just go on the I blocked the sniper's second shot, right? <laughs> right? So that I could get through the door. And I'm like, how much better if the dude with the 308 or whatever he has is shooting the second shot and I don't have to jump through a door and figure out the jack-in-the-box, what do I see, how do I handle it deal? And I thought to myself, I wonder, I wonder how many times we've done this that way and it's we took the sniper's shot away that could have safely resolved it. Just little things like that, right? Like, I just didn't know. Yeah, and there could be a multiple suspects too. Yeah, I saw a a great video of a guy. He had shot at a probation officer and some people, and they were pinned down behind a tree. And it's not a SWAT gets there. He's barricaded, and they're turning the corner of the house to make an entry because they don't know where he is. And he's all of a sudden he pops up and he's pointing a gun right at the entry team. Sniper takes a shot. It's all on video. He um. He falls onto the stairwell and he looks like he's dead. So they're starting to move forward. He's like, yeah, he's not, you know, shots away. He's down. And then uh, probably a solid 10, 12 seconds go by and the team's moving up to the door and he just all of a sudden wakes back up, puts points the pistol right in the doorway, like, like a zombie. And the sniper's like, stop. And he, you know, shoots him one more time because he was about to get the entry guy, you know, and yeah. you're like, imagine if they had just ran through the front door, you know, he'd have got, he'd have got somebody. So, um, talk a little bit about equipment. So, um, one thing we do see is, um, you know, Matt's talked to, uh, to Doc Engel, uh, from the blast acoustics mitigation guys that did a lot of work with the DOD and, uh, they just did a study with uh, LAPD in Bakersfield and uh, came out with some tools to mitigate uh, blast and acoustic damage, which causes TBI, uh, particularly um, large arms fire, you know, so snipers, uh, but even a small arms fire. So um, you talk about that because you see a lot of you see a lot of suppressors now, right? Yeah, a lot more guys are running suppressors, which is nice to see. Not enough. Yeah, right. He's right. Yeah, yeah. Pretty cool to see a lot of patrol agencies outfitting their entire patrol with with suppressors now. So think of all the hearing and all the other issues we have. But talk to me a little about the challenges of uh, of suppressors with your rifle and some of the things you've seen. Uh, There's not a lot of downsides to a suppressor that 
that we see other than it adds a little bit of length and weight. Uh, the probably the biggest liability is if you're not keeping track of it, um, making sure it's ratcheted all the way down every now and then we see some of them work loose a little bit and people will get a baffle strike. And obviously that could be a liability if it happened on an operation at the symposium last year, somebody, it was raining really hard. It was like a monsoon out there and somebody's suppressor went completely airborne off the end of their rifle and he had to go fish it out of a, basically a lake, you know? Um, and I think it just wasn't on all the way. So, you know, we're just basically harping on people, not just suppressors, but anything that screws on will screw off on its own. If you don't keep track of it, everything from tripod screws to your action screws, um, anything that holds anything down, you know, we're telling them throw a torque wrench on it routinely as part of your maintenance. And that goes for suppressors too. Um, but I don't see a lot of downsides to a suppressor other than the cost, which isn't that bad, really. You're talking what, 800 bucks to a to twelve hundred, yeah, eight, eight to eight to fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars for for a more expensive titanium or whatever. But they're, uh, yeah, pretty much all benefit. You get increased velocity. You, I, I'm not sure exactly the reason of this, but every every time I've seen a rifle equipped with a suppressor, they generally shoot better groups. Um, they're the like we do a lot of the night vision uh, shooting, there's less sounds or a flash signature to it. Um, they're just all the way around are, are definitely something you want to have on your gun. The, the only thing that I recommend people do is stay away from anything uh, quick detach with uh, the precision rifles. Go to a direct thread mounting system, you'll be better off. People are always kind of surprised and it generally shows up when their suppressor comes loose um, last class we had, we even had a guy that didn't have a suppressor on their gun, but the thread protector on the end of the barrel worked loose and they were all of a sudden, they're getting weird deviations on the target. And it's because of the barrel harmonics of having a shift of your, either the collar, the protective collar, or you can get that shift with a suppressor on. So we really recommend people go to a direct thread for that. And, you know, if you're training several times during the day, make sure, put a hand up there and make sure that it's, it's ratcheted down tightly. Just not after 80 rounds. No, you know, get warm. To get a little hot. <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. You got a little baked in there sometimes. Yeah. What about, uh, we see, uh, I always had a bolt gun. Um, a lot of people traditionally still like the bolt guns. Um, but we also see a lot of folks liking the AR-10 platform. And uh, I know when we, we had a couple AR-10s, um, we had nothing but malfunctions with them. And I don't know if that was just a brand we had or uh, my opinion was that particular brand was really just taking taking a 223 platform and throwing a barrel on it. And uh, the rest of the gun was not built uh, robustly enough for that larger round to take the, you know, the, the fight from that larger round. Yeah, we see a fair amount of AR-10 platforms come through. Um, there are some that are good that shoot really well and that perform relatively flawlessly. But I would say if we're going to have a problem gun in class, it's more likely to be an AR-10 that doesn't go across the board. But, um, there's a few AR-10 platforms that I would say, yeah, if you're going to get one, go with them. Um, others can be kind of a roll of the dice. Uh, in terms of accuracy and functionality. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I, the the AR10 platform is I've seen you know, I try to reserve I one number of the one I I I want that system to work well. Like I'm an I want it to work. Oh yeah. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. And uh, and I have seen some that do, and I'm not going to pick on manufacturers and 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 that kind of stuff, but they uh they frequently uh shoot uh, groups that are that are not particularly good. They have reliability issues. One of the problems with a semi-automatic gun in the realm of precision is the very first round loaded into that gun, which is your most important one, goes into that chamber different than all the subsequent rounds. One of them is being hand-loaded in there by, by just the spring mechanism, and the subsequent ones are going in there from either direct impingement or the whatever piston system. And that in and of itself breeds some different variations. They're finicky to shoot. Um, they take more concentration for whatever reason to shoot well. And, uh, and really <clears throat> we get a lot of them that come through class. And one of the red flags for me is they have a collapsible stock and you grab the stock and it's, you know, they all, a lot of them have a little bit of play in them, which for an entry guide makes no difference. It's fine. But trying to maintain a cheek weld on a rifle that has a rattle to it, you can't really adjust it up or down, is not conducive to getting a good um, a good sight picture through your scope. And uh, so, yeah, it, just, it causes a lot of problems. I'd really like to see people just go away from them and go to a bolt gun. And then the other thing is, if you're doing your job correctly, you shouldn't be sending multiple rounds downrange. Like, it, it, it uh, really, it's incumbent on that, that first round. Yeah, it's great if you want to, you're in an urban environment, and you're engaging multiple targets as fast as possible, and you need that heavier round, you know, to penetrate, uh, you know, different obstacles or obstructions. But generally, we're not engaging multiple targets. Um, and we're not high speed running through an urban area like maybe the military would. So, so slightly, slightly a little different. I, I agree with you. Um I was super excited to try it, right? I'm like, oh man, I really hope this works. And I, I don't, I guess it's just too many moving parts for that kind of precision. Um, it takes a lot more tighter tolerances, um, just a little bit more finicky with the kind of round, you know? I always had this, I always had this thought that it would work really well because a lot of the calls you get deployed on, they're not static yet. And so you're like torn between, I want to bring an assault rifle with me. And then I want to also bring my sniper rifle with me. And I always had this idea where you could have a short red dot, you know, 308 upper, and then you could backpack, you know, an 18 or 20 inch rifle with a full scope on it. You could get into your position, look at what you have and say, okay, yeah, I need a sniper rifle here and a take, take down pin and a pivot pin. And now you've got a sniper rifle and it's a great idea, but it, the problem is they just too many times we've seen in class that the guns just don't do what they're expected to do. Um, and it's just, it's kind of the, the way it is. And so we could argue about this one and nerd out on this one for another hour, but let's talk about scope selection. Let's talk about the argument of magnification. Right? That's, a, that's a big yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. As I get older, 
the more magnification I want. Uh, even my patrol rifles get a little more magnification than, than necessary. Um, just in case, just in case, right? In case I have to shoot past 50 yards, I want to be able to see better, um, even on my patrol rifles. So um, what are some of the challenges you've seen with that? And uh, you can really spend a lot of money on that. And uh, especially like I, I grew up hunting and still like to hunt when I can. And especially if you're out in the West where you're taking these real long shots, but uh, you're not going to take a 500 yard sniper shot very rarely. Um, we've had a couple. Uh, we've definitely had a couple in the country, but unusual, but very unusual. So talk to me a little about the, the challenges with scopes, the magnification and, and then they all, we all know about the uh, difference of where your scope is and where your muzzle is, right? Something we try to never right. forget. Right. Lots of, like Frank said, lots of videos floating around to reinforce that one too. Um, so the PRS came along a few years ago. It's a, you know, precision rifle sport shooting and it's great. It's been great for law enforcement. A lot of really cool things have bled over support bags, um, really good rifles for under 2,500 bucks. Um, due to the production class requirements. Um, and one of the things we've seen bleed over that maybe could be a little bit of a liability is the scope magnification. And Frank and I talk about this a lot because people will come through class with, you know, a five and a half to 27 power scope. The low end of magnification is five and a half and it goes all the way up to 27. And if you're shooting steel on PRS matches, you're, you're never going to be so close that five and a half is too much. It's not an issue, right? But for law enforcement, and like Frank was just talking about, we deploy well inside of 100 yards a lot. I mean, we could be 22 yards inside an apartment complex or something. And if that's the case, five and a half power is way too much. Um, you're you're going to have a hard time finding your target. Your field of view is going to be really limited, and it presents some issues. So it's tough because sometimes people come through and like, we just got this thing. It's great. And it is, it's a really good high quality scope, but it's like, man, I hate to tell you this, but you know, you're going to, you're going to need something else. That's just not realistic for what we do. And some of these guys work in urban environments, you know, and, and the advanced class, we shoot the 800 and it's like, you don't need 27 power, even at 800. You can know, do it with 10. You could do it with 10. And sometimes we tell guys back your power off and then they start shooting better because they're just seeing too much, you know, all that magnification. It's just, yeah, you're chasing it around. Um, so yeah, the magnification can be an issue. There's some really good scopes out there that have really good ranges for law enforcement, like two and a half to 20 is our favorite. Um, so when people are picking scopes out, we just encourage them to think about actual deployment conditions. Like, like you mentioned, um, there's a lot of other factors. I uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't go cheap on the scope. You know, um, you don't have to drop $8,000 on a rifle. You can drop 2,500 and get a rifle that I'll bet you shoots as well as that $8,000 rifle. And then that leaves you enough leftover for a really good piece of optics. And, and the other thing I'll say about magnification, if people are using the justification of, uh, I need to be able to use that to see better, 
um, to gather intel, uh, I would say that's what a spotting scope's for. And we have to provide our people some kind of magnification that's not attached to a gun. Because if all I have is a, a gun sight to use for observation, that means I have to point a gun at anything I want to look at. So that could be end up being team members. It could end up being civilians, people that you really have no business pointing a loaded gun at. So we really encourage people, if they don't have a good spotting scope, get one and you know, if you need to get a lot of magnification, you should be depending on that, not your, not your rifle. And uh, Frank can chime in. Yeah. Matt, Matt touched on, um, on uh, magnification and I completely agree with, with everything you said. Um, I would stick toward, um, uh, consistency in your team. So one of the things we'll see is, um, teams will get a little bit of money. They'll buy two new scopes and they buy them completely different. And so, Two guys are running a mill system. Two guys are running an MOA system. And uh, and I'll, that's one of the questions you'll frequently get is, hey, would you recommend mill or MOA um, for, your, for your turrets and all that kind of stuff? My answer is always the same. They're just two ways of using angular measurement. They're, they're both good. I'm not going to tell you which one to get. What I will tell you is make sure that everyone on your team is running the same exact piece of equipment. Um, that way you guys are all talking the same when you go to class, uh, when you go to school or when you're training, everybody's on the same page. Um, so, and then you don't see them that much anymore, but you, you used to see where someone had a mill based reticle, like a standard mill dot, and then their turrets are being moved by, you know, MOA. Um, nowadays, most of the scope companies are putting out MOA based reticles to match up with the MOA turrets and mill-based reticles and mill-based mill turrets, which is which is good. Probably long overdue. I'm not really sure why it took so long to do that. But yeah, it that's, did. A, that's a funny thing, huh? <laughs> um, you know, someone was probably sitting around a room and like, hey, I have an idea. You know, it's like, okay. I can't believe they, you can get custom turrets now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now you don't have to look at your notebook and do the clicks because you just print them out for what you want. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing ever. Like, how come we didn't do that the whole time? Or how come we didn't print a sticker and just put it on there so I don't have to count my clicks and do like, like just basic stuff. You're like, I could have, I'm not that smart. I could have been really rich or at least medium wealthy. Yeah. Right? yeah. The, so, the other issue with scopes is like, and Matt touched on this too, is, is quality. If you think again about what the sniper is doing, a lot of what they're doing is observing and, uh, so the better glass you have, the better you're able to see. And where you notice that is low light capability and which gets into night vision. If you, if your average clip on night vision that you're going to park in front of a, a sniper scope is 10 grand. I mean, that's like the standard deal. And if you have medium quality or kind of crap quality glass on your rifle, you're not getting everything out of that night vision unit that you should be getting. So, you know, uh, if you want to get the best out of it, you need to, you need to be spending some decent amount of money getting good quality glass out of your, uh, out of your scope. And then on that too, you, you kind of have to think about, and this is the problem is, is a lot of teams will start looking at different rifles or they're going to buy different equipment and they're not really sure what to buy. And so they'll call companies and they'll let, people who are dealing mostly with the military guide them on what to get for their law enforcement equipment instead of reaching out to people who are kind of experts in that field. 
Um, so you'll see guys buy rings or bases and they're like, Hey, I want a, I want a 20 MOA base, you know, for having more elevation, not realizing that when they go to buy night vision, it's going to end up complicating that and, and causing problems down the road. So if you're a team that's running night vision, you kind of have to look at that. Like, Hey, what kind of rings do we want to have so that they're collimated with the night vision unit that we're using? Yeah, we, we had that problem. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, <laughs> and it's then a, as soon as you change rifles, you're like, oh, dang it. Now I got to redo this whole thing again. Yep. Yep. For my sweet 20 year old, you know, night visions. So very, very true. So, um, we talked a little bit about that. What about, what about positional shooting? So everyone, you mentioned it before, everyone's going to start prone. And, you know, if you could shoot all prone shots, it'd be great because it's the most stable platform you get. Yeah. But I think I won't speak for you, but you got to go with what your mission profile is and what, what do you have available and what, what's more realistic and what, what are some of those things you've seen? Yeah. And again, that's one of the, one of the advantages of PRS bleeding over is you see a lot of that. You see a lot of new support bags, really versatile, um, things that you can stabilize your position with. And, you know, it's really, it's really easy to just lay on your stomach and, and shoot all day and, and at a hundred yards exactly, because we want everything to be predictable and you should for sure be confirming zero at that distance, if that's your zero distance. But then you, then you got to get out of that position and start shooting uncomfortable positions and positions that you know you're not as good at, right? It's like, well, I like shooting little tight groups. It makes me feel good about myself. But, you know, we don't shoot groups on suspects as as the guy who trained me used to say all the time. And so we shouldn't really get too concerned about that. And we have to, we have to really be realistic with ourselves about what our capabilities are at different distances, different positions. And, and you have to experiment with that in training. Even if you just find out that man, I can't make that shot. I'm never going to try that in the real world, you know, unless we're in the middle of nowhere and there's no risk in missing. But um, it's hard to get people to do that. You know, it's hard to get people to shoot at different distances, even inside of 100. Like Frank said, shoot at 68, shoot at 73. Do you know where it's going to go? Do you know what your offset is? Like you talked about the offset between the scope and the muzzle. And uh, that's something we harp on a lot. Or even just enough to know what it looks like, right? To be able to go, that's about 70 yards. Like right. I've shot that so right. many times that I know that's 70 yards or that's 60 yards or that's 30 yards, right? And I know you guys were deputies or are deputies, so this just doesn't apply to you. But think about someone who does traffic control and uh, they can estimate speed, right? Well, you don't do that because you, you do it for the reps, Right. right. They sit there and they get the reps and, okay, that's probably 40 miles an hour. Um, and I confirmed it, you know, and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, super interesting. And then, uh, the proliferation of some of the equipment, like you said, like, uh, like tripods shooting off, uh, you know, started off with saddles and just homemade stuff. Right. Like yep, I, had, yeah. I had some homemade stuff that somebody made. And then now just the, light titanium pivot like you could take it hunting strap it on your backpack carry that mm -hmm. thing all day and uh man that takes somebody like me who's mediocre at best and makes me look real good if i can if i can get into that kind of position yeah and the tripod is such a versatile position to deploy from you know and a lot of teams once they get comfortable with them that i've had them tell me i can't remember the last time i 
deployed any other way than off of a tripod because once they're comfortable with it, um, it just offers them so many advantages. You know, it's like, I think some of these guys would rather be on a tripod than prone supported and, and that's okay. Especially at the distances, you know, you're 40 yards away. You should be plenty good from a tripod standing to do your job. Um, but you have to, you have to practice it, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that's one thing like five years ago, maybe, what do you think, Frank, like a third of the people coming through class had a tripod. If that, and now I'd say 90%. Yep. 90 yep. to sometimes a hundred percent have tripods and they're actually know how to use them. And so that's really been cool to see. And yeah, even those things are evolving. Like you said, a lot of guys just clipping straight into an Arca mount now and not even using oh, a yeah. saddle, you know, and, yeah, and the yeah. saddles are fine, but, um, but man, you know. once you get that, yeah, it's totally different. Yeah. Yeah. If you you're can not, take you're not screwing with the saddle, <laughs> yeah. you're not tightening it. You're not, or especially if you're shooting at an angle. So now you're, you're aiming down or aiming up. You know, your your saddles wiggling and yeah, all that just taking out those little those little friction points. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it too, like how many of you have been on a SWAT call that resolve within a half an hour? Like these are things you're gonna be there for six, eight, nine, ten, fifteen hours. And if you're not if you're not comfortable, you're not gonna be able to do the task that your boss wants you to be able to do. So uh, the tripod definitely aids in that where you can get set up and be able to concentrate and watch what you're supposed to watch and uh, be able to do that for hours at a time without getting fatigued. Uh, yeah. A student in class this week was just talking today about how he was pretty new to the long rifle element. He spent like three or four days at a class working mostly on tripods. He comes back the next day, gets deployed on a hostage barricade, sets up on a tripod and ends up taking a, a hostage rescue shot from his tripod. He was really comfortable doing it because he just spent a lot of time, you know, training it right before. And so you can get comfortable with things pretty quickly if you're committed to, to just working through that uncomfortable part and sticking with it until your capabilities move along with your expectations, you know? Talk to me a little bit about training platforms versus ego. I think it's just kind of what we were already talking about, like just not not focusing on drills that feed your ego, not worried about not being worried about shooting little tiny groups, um, being willing to to shoot worse so that you can grow and learn, you know, and and just be realistic. You know, we tell people you don't always have to shoot at that little diamond or that little circle that you shoot your, your cold boring groups at switch to a human head shaped target, uh, a 2d paper target. Or we use the mannequin heads. Like you talked about, we're, we're real big on those because they're a lot more realistic. And I can remember days that Frank and I'd be at sniper training and I'd be just having a really bad day shooting lousy groups that no matter what yeah. I did, I just couldn't seem to get my act together um, and shoot a pretty group. And so we would 17 switch. years later. Right. Right. <laughs> so we'd say, you know what, let's shoot, let's shoot some, some face targets. And you, and you do that and you realize, you know what, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> like even on a yeah. bad day, I, I can still do my uh, job yeah, yeah. On, on a man sized target. And, and, and yeah, just be willing to, to not be great at something in order to grow, you know, get uncomfortable get comfortable with uncomfortable, right? As the saying goes, uh, we really push, um, shooting on more realistic types of targets, not necessarily a mover, like a lateral mover, which we, we do that too, but just what we call non-static targets. So anything that can give you some kind of 
simulated human head movement in like, like just looking around or moving or peeking or anything like that. That's going to be a little bit more realistic when you're engaging targets like that. You're, you're not thinking about groups anymore. You know, you're thinking right. about just putting an effective hit downrange and, and resolving the issue and kind of gets people's minds in the right place, I think. So we really do as much of that as we can in our classes and we encourage people to go home and, and do the same. And there's a lot of things you can do that don't cost a lot of money to do that. You know, uh, I've seen people use balloons and then, mm -hmm. you know, how you attach the balloon has a definite impact on how that works out for you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is, and how use, windy it is. <laughs> yeah. You use a rod, you mm -hmm. use a string, you, you make it two inches from what you're holding it or you make it six or eight and then it's going to move that around anymore. Or, um, all kinds of stuff that I've seen, you know, people do creatively just to, you know, reenact that stuff or, um, shooting in the vehicles. Yeah. Right. Like I didn't shoot in a vehicle for a long time and then we started doing that. And I'm like, now, now, you know, a lot of people do it and you learn a lot about ballistics if you spend the time, you know, with your rifle going, okay, if I really have to shoot a, a shot through a windshield, what's that really going to look like? And uh, you learn real fast what parts of the car bullets go through and what parts they're going to yaw and ricochet. And yeah. are you willing to take that chance? It's not, it's not TV. This is a real deal right. here. And so when you mentioned glass, like not, we always ask how many guys shoot through glass, even at the advanced classes, almost nobody does it. And it's not that, you know, difficult, really you just go to a local glass shop and anytime they replace windows at a house, they're, they're usually bringing the old stuff back to throw in the dumpster. If you just tell them, put it aside, that's what we do. They have stacks and stacks of it, you know, and it, logistically it's a little bit more of a pain. So I get that part, but there's no reason not to be shooting through glass somewhat regularly testing your ammo. And, and that's kind of another benefit of teaching these classes all the time. Over time, we've seen ammo evolve and we're like, man, this stuff is doing a lot better through glass than it used to. And then we'll, I wonder what yeah. we'll do next class. Like, Hey, it's still doing well. I don't know if they changed something on purpose or if it's just by happenstance, but you know, it's doing great through glass. And so we, we kind of know what to recommend in terms of ammo and that, again, that can change, but. You know, one of the, I'll, I'll keep us moving along here, but I, all the, the time shooting patrol shoots and even a lot of SWAT shoots, I never shot into a house. Right. And so we had a house we were working in Demino and we're like, Hey, let's shoot a two, two, three, let's shoot a three Oh eight. Mm -hmm. See what happens. And if it doesn't hit a king stud or a stud, it's gone. That thing's mm -hmm. gonna go through that whole house. Even yeah. a two two three, yeah. if it doesn't hit anything, yeah. it's gonna it's gonna go a long distance through that house. And and why we know that when you see it, it really changes how you look at okay, why am I bringing a rifle in here? Yeah. Or, or like <laughs> I miss this shot, or if I hit this person, that 308 is gonna go through them. How far is it gonna go after that? Yeah, if, Frank, if it doesn't fragment. Frank could tell you a good story about that. <laughs> yeah, 308 rounds do go through houses. And if you happen to be laying in the backyard of the house, um, you'll you'll hear them go over your head. <laughs> we yeah, we were on a call where the where the guys on the front side of the house took a shot and uh missed the guy, and the round went through the window he was behind. And just happened and it went down the hallway. So all it hit in the house was the glass it went through 
and the glass that went out the back of the so house. So it didn't on. even lose velocity. It didn't even lose anything. <laughs> it was it was loud enough. I turned to the guy that was next to me and I'm like, did you just shoot? And he's like, no. I'm like, are you sure? And then then the chatter from the front side of the house went out. And I'm like, oh, that was that round going over our head supersonic that sounded like a gunshot. If you've ever been in that position, you, you'll recognize it. And uh, yeah, so they they will definitely kind of go, which, you know, brings us back to the, the AR-10 platform is like, do you really want a lot of 308 rounds being fired in, in a residential area? I mean, there it's a lot of the places we're deploying on, they're built up. Like mm -hmm. uh, we had another uh, call where one of the perimeter guys shot and missed and um, hit into a, another house. And that, that round went deep into the house too. Uh, yeah. Through several walls. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. We dug it out and <clears throat> looked at how many walls, you know, it went through and like, that was just a two, two, three. Yeah. You know, just a patrol two, two, three with patrol ammo. Yeah. Like not, nothing fancy. I'm like, man, imagine if you had a 308 and you had some kind of barrier around in it or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going through all that. Yep. So, um, so we talked a little bit about equipment. Um, what we didn't talk about, um, spotting scopes. So again, I agree with you. The majority of the work's not shooting, right? So the majority of the work is, uh, observation so what are, what are some things you see in the spotting scope uh which good spotting scopes aren't cheap they're not but um so my viewpoint on that is um this is one time i guess i'll talk about a product but uh, bushnell has a tactical sp spotter that has some rail on it it's pretty affordable it's not particularly expensive and if if something is so big or heavy or cumbersome that you're not going to carry it, then why buy top of the end or you know top of the line glass for that? So um, I like the Bushnell. It looks very similar to like the Leupold Mark IV spotters, um, which I've always I, I have two of them. I use them. They have some good qualities to them, but I've always thought the glass was kind of lacking. Lacking, honestly, it wasn't wasn't some of their best stuff. Um, but the Bushnell one is really good. It's uh, it's got decent glass in it. It's got a, a mill dot reticle in it. Uh, and it's small. It can something you can put in your backpack and it's plenty powerful enough to do the stuff that you would, you would need to do on a call. He's got two of them and he doesn't even like them. Just imagine how many he'd have if he liked it. Frank, Frank kind of feels like anything worth buying once is worth buying twice. Yep, He's got yep. two of everything. Just so you know, I immediately thought, I'm going to wait till Frank gets his next model and see if I can buy one of his old models. He won't, he won't sell it. Yeah, I never my, uh, I always regret it. My hunting partners have, they spend a lot of money on spotting scope. So uh, I don't even have one because I'm like, why would I buy that one when you have spotting scopes that cost twice as much as what I'm buying. So I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm usually hunting with you. So we'll be good. And then the other day I'm like, uh, I'm not hunting with those guys. I'm going to have to fork out some money here and get myself a spotting scope. <clears throat> so, I've looked through some spotting scopes that are impressive. They're four, four or $5,000 spotting scopes, but they're also large enough where I'm like, I'm not going to put that in my backpack. I'm not going to lug that around. And so what's the point of, of having it? If you have something, you're going to use it. Um, which is one of the reasons why I like the loophole, uh, Mark IV spotting scopes is they're compact. They're small. You can fit them in a backpack. Oh yeah, those those nice ones. You're you're like need a little Sherpa. Yeah, because they have their own tripod. Because you're not going to hold them. Yeah, you know, and you're not going to take it off your rifle normally. So, yeah, it's a whole whole separate setup. So, we talked a lot about tripods. Talked a little bit about stabilization packs. Um, I think my sniper school. We had a guy that that actually made 
uh, bags and his wife was sewing them. And so uh, he was smart, right? He showed up with a couple bags. We're like, ooh, those are nice. I like how those are wedged and moved. They had some molly on them so you could hang them off your pack. And, well, really, my, my wife happens to make these. I could probably have a couple tomorrow for you. <laughs> right? I'm like, look at this guy, right? Yeah. But you know what? Uh, 15 years ago, I still have them. Yeah. I use them when I hunt. I use them hunting now. And uh, still have them. So um, super, super encourage everybody to try that. Anything else on uh, on equipment that you've seen that that are helpful? Uh, it's it's come a long way, and you know, like ten years ago, we'd have to really try to talk people into using like a rear squeeze bag. You know, it's like no, nah, no, nah, yeah. I don't want. <laughs> We're like, trust me, man, it's going to make your life better. And now everybody's got one, so that's good. Um, they've got all kinds of other bags, game changer bags, and um, all kinds of stuff you can use to stabilize position. Some of them don't know how to use them yet but that's okay like yeah. they have them they're getting them issued yeah, yeah. and that's what's important and <clears throat> and we can help them figure out how to use them but that's been really good that's come a long way um i don't know what else for equipment frank uh, one of the things i keep seeing in class um is not everybody's running a sling on their rifle um as crazy as that may sound but but we do every class every basic class guys come through and they're like four or five guys don't have slings um, or, or, and then there's a whole another category of guys that are using slings that are designed for like a AR platform, like a smaller, lighter gun. And we've seen them break and damage optics and all kinds of stuff. Um, so a good high quality sling, uh, is essential. They incorporate into, uh, tripod shooting. Um, you know, they, they add stability for all of that kind of stuff. So slings for sure. Um, another area is cause my kind of my area that I think people are lacking in is night vision. But if you don't have night vision, you probably ought to have a white light, um, that you can put on your rifle after it gets dark because target ID is important. And it's the same reason why you have it on your AR is the same reason why it should be on your, on your sniper rifle. You should have some sort of white light that you can clip on there quickly and, you know, you're looking at something, you're like, Hey, I need to see whether that's a cell phone or a gun, or I need some better target ID. You have a white light source available to you. And, you know, I'm saying that with the caveat of when you turn that on, you're kind of gigs up at that point, you're either going to have to yeah. move or something. There's going to be some tactics coming in that, but there are going to be times where as a sniper, you may need white light. Yeah. And you can use remote lights too, if you need to, yep. you know, but, uh, and then that goes back to, do you like illuminated reticles or right for low light and that kind of thing? So one thing about snipers, man, there's always something to buy. I've never, I've never once been a supervisor at the command or sergeant level where the snipers are like, no man, we're good. We get everything we need. That's, <laughs> true. Like, That's like, not possible. Like, when you, when you look at needs list on your SWAT team every year, the longest list is always the snipers, man. Always the snipers. Yeah. Very true. So, um, we're up to about an hour here. So, uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit um, about the Sniper Symposium. Matt's been running Cato Sniper Symposium, where we bring in folks from uh, all over the state. Mm -hmm. And uh, talk to us a little bit about what that is and then uh, when it is, because it's, it's uh, around the corner here coming up in the spring. Yeah, we just locked dates in for that today. It's going to be April 30th through May 2nd. We're going to be in San Luis Obispo again, which works out pretty well. It's a, it's a great range facility and it's right in the middle of the state. So, and it's great for, uh, traversing water. 
It was last so year. Last year you had a lake. I've never seen that much water come out of the sky in my life. Uh, it was really bad timing, but in, in a way it was kind of awesome too. Is like we were laughing saying, well, sometimes if you don't get a good experience, you at least get a good story, you know? And I think a lot of guys will always remember the monsoon of 2023. Um, we've done it two years in a row. The first year was two days. Last year was three, more like two and a half. This year will also be two and a half days. Uh, the first day we've actually, we're moving it to the hotel this time so that we have a little bit bigger facility to accommodate people was getting kind of tight in the clubhouse at the, uh, Slosa range. And we'll have a little bit better lighting control for PowerPoint. We have, um, teams come in and debrief sniper related OISs, um, that is useful to the sniper community. The first day again, will be free to, you know, whoever team leaders, administrators, we're encouraging them to come out and, you know, just hear the debriefs, kind of get a feel for what their teams need so that they can provide the support if they know about it. Um, and then that'll be like the morning of day one, the afternoon will be out at the range. We're still locking in all the details, but we'll be out at the range. We'll have a bunch of equipment vendors out there. The vendors have been awesome. They donate really nice stuff for the raffles. The raffles been really good. Um, give, you know, raffling off a couple of guns each year. And I saw some of that stuff you took home and put in your garage. It was some good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't supposed to talk about that. Yeah. I haven't heard about this. Yeah, Frank, <laughs> some of that was supposed to be for you, Frank, but I forgot. Um, so much for Christmas. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, and so we'll have some, some stations, some demos where nothing's set in stone yet, but we're looking at maybe some barrier penetration demo. If we can get, the right ballistic dummies that we're hoping to get. We'd like to do something with that. Uh, and then day two will be, um, stations, training stations. Everybody will be able to rotate through, um, several training stations. And then day three is, is kind of just more of a fun competitive atmosphere. We, we put everybody through scored courses of fire. It is a scored competition, but you know, really it's just an opportunity to, kind of apply the skills you've been working on and, and help people identify, Hey, I'm solid here. I need to go home and work on this and this, you know? Oh, don't you, it's a competition because it is the guys that won wanted to make sure I acknowledge them. I know. They, they I know. actually literally said, don't you know who I am? I won the, yeah, smell like mahogany. I won the Cato sniper symposium. I expect you to, uh, refer to me differently. <laughs> Rightfully so. Yeah, um, they did a good job. We, we, I will say, we're we send everybody their individual ranking. We do not post an overall ranking because we're not looking to make life harder for anybody. If if somebody has a bad day and doesn't place well, we don't want them worrying that that's out there or the the media is going to get a hold of it or anything like that. So we are really careful about that, but we give people an opportunity to kind of test themselves and see where they are. Use it as a little bit of a litmus test. Uh, we get, we get them out of comfortable positions. The stuff we've been talking about, we, we put them through some, some different things than they're used to. Some of them are more ready for it than others. You can tell who's been training differently. And, you know, we've gotten a lot of good feedback from it. Um, we're going to bring in some other instructors to help, help with the stations and, and teach specific things, uh, for the CrossFit community. Dave Castro is, is committed to being there this year. I talked to him today and on text and he said, he's in, he's super excited. 
for people that don't know about Dave outside of CrossFit, Dave, you know, has a military background. He did a lot of rifle stuff in the Navy and he's big in PRS. He, he's really into the PRS world. He's a good shooter. Frank and I were in a competition. He was at one time. And so I could tell you firsthand, the, the guy could shoot. Uh, he's always been really gracious about inviting law enforcement to his place and just providing free training for him. Um, so he, he kind of jumped at the opportunity to do this. He actually popped in at last year's. He just kind of showed up. Um, but when he saw what we were doing, he said, Hey, I, I want to be involved in this next year. I'll, I'll make it a priority. So I think that'll be really cool. Um, is that the, is that when you're going to challenge him to a burpee contest? Uh, I will <laughs> challenge him on your behalf if you want. Yeah. I'll suck in that. I don't think I would challenge anybody to a burpee contest at this point. Even if uh, I could win, I just don't want to do that many burpees. I don't think I don't I'd like challenge it. him to any contest. I don't think so. Even if it was sleeping, he would he would he wouldn't be happy if he didn't win. <laughs> that's, that's probably he's never seen anybody sleep like he's that. He's too competitive. Yeah, yeah, I will outsleep you. Exactly. Yeah, very but, true. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it'll be a good event. It's going to be fun. We're just trying to improve it a little bit every year um, and what's our max uh what do you think our max number of attendees is i think last year we had somewhere in the 60s uh we cap it at 80 and and even that i'm like oh man if we actually had all 80 it would it would be a little challenging time management wise if we're squared away we can get 80 through um, but i don't think we can really probably do more than that. So we'll yeah. cap it at 80. We haven't yeah. hit that cap yet. We've come real close and we've, we've had probably almost that many signed up, but then not everybody shows yeah, up. People have happens. conflicts last minute. Yeah. Um, so if it just stays exactly the way it's been, I'll be really happy with that. It's been a really good manageable number, but a good turnout at the same time. Yeah. So, uh, in the future coming up here after the conference, um, be looking for the uh, Cato newsletter, which you can sign up for for free to get an announcements on uh, what we're doing. You'll get some symposium information when that starts opening up. We'll post it on our uh, social media uh, stuff and then uh, on the website. So uh, highly encourage you. We uh, at Cato, we're big fans of the symposium model where we can really squeeze in uh, a lot of training in two, three days and uh, kind of make them topic specific. So be looking for us to develop more of those uh, in other topics here, uh, looking at looking at kind of things around the state that we need to, we need to meet the needs, which Matt and I have had extensive conversations about. Yeah. And so yep. um, gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Any last words, uh, words of wisdom? And I guess you're, you uh, also get sponsors for the symposium. So I forgot about that. So we thank do. you to last year's sponsors. Yeah. Um, we're always looking for more because yes. that's, that's really what makes this event take place. We're not going to, we don't, we don't, we're not, a, we're, an, we're not for profit, but we still need to cover all our costs. And there's no way that a mission alone uh, could cover the cost of running that symposium because uh, we want to make it so that everybody can come. Yeah. The vendors have been great and they, between them, they, they cover lunch all three days. So nobody has to buy lunch and we don't you have to worry about leaving the range to get fed. And the vendors have been great. Well, through donations of food, um, and the raffle and, and the raffle. Yeah. They've donated some really cool stuff. Uh, I guess, raffle. uh, advanced combat is, uh, going to be a big sponsor this year. Oh, is that you yeah. roping me in on the air? So I heard I about that. Back. Yeah. I heard <laughs> yeah. advanced combat. Okay. I guess so. Advanced combat evolution, evolution, evolution. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You might be you like my that? new spokesman. <laughs> yeah.
Thank you. Appreciate you guys joining me. Uh, stay tuned for more info on the uh, symposium. Frank, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks for having and, me. And uh, Matt, as always, I look forward to seeing you at the conference this year. And uh, Absolutely. We'll uh, make sure we put you to work. I know you will. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 